Okay, today my guest is Professor Anthony Gerton. I'll keep my <clears throat> introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Anthony as a person. Professor Gerton is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. And <clears throat> for the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Gertsen's research is on the behavior and performance of multinational corporations with a particular focus on location strategy and cooperative strategies. He also works on environmental sustainability and his dissertation was recognized by European International Business Association and the Academy of Management. His research has been published in SMJ, JEPS, Journal of Management, Management International Review, Journal of International Management, Asia-Pacific Journal of Management, Academy of Management Perspectives, among others. He has written several book chapters and many teaching case studies. Some of these cases are in Ivy Publishing's top 10 bestsellers. Thank you, Anthony, for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. <clears throat> First question, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? <laughs> yes, when I, well, I guess, uh, ever since I was a little boy, I've always wanted to be an international business professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. In fact, I went to school just to learn my MNCs. No, you know what? I, I wish I had a better answer for you. Um, you know, I would say that when I was a kid, my strong suit wasn't focus. And I would say that it felt like the whole world was a bit of a of a black box. I, I've, I've thought on many occasions, um, you know, over the years, that I really had, I would say, I had no idea what was possible, um, wh whether, you know, to be a, a doctor or a fireman or an astronaut or, you know, I, I you could see some of these um, individuals around you, but I never really had, I don't think, any sense for how one goes about getting there. So I think that I kind of, I would say that, you know, my interest when I was a kid was uh, riding my bike around and uh, I was very interested in basketball. I really loved playing football. So I'd say that I focused more on, on, on those things than any sense of, of, a, of a career. And where did you grow up? In Canada, in Southern Ontario. In, the city is called St. Catharines. It's near Niagara Falls. And how did you choose academia? Well, I'm a late bloomer as far as academia goes. Uh, I was in industry for almost 15 years uh, before returning to get my PhD. Um, and uh, I often thought that I, I loved school. I always loved school. Um, well, I would say in the younger years, not so much. But as I grew uh, older and especially in university, I really enjoyed being in school. But then I guess my first, my first job, I, I liked what I was doing. Uh, I was excited by the prospects of, uh, of the company I was working for. Um, I seemed to do well there. I was moving along career-wise. And, um, and then came to a point where I realized that I needed something different. And I felt that my business career was one where I was focused solely on making money for the company and, and for myself and found that I, it didn't have this sense of, I guess, of purpose that I 
felt I needed. And, um, and, and in addition to that, it might sound a little bit, I don't know if this sound, what this sounds like, but when Michael Jordan, the, the great basketball player, he, he quit basketball um, in 19, I think it was the early 94, something like that. And he, to, he wanted to play basketball. He wanted to do something else. And so he went to go play baseball for a year and um, and didn't do very well. I mean, he couldn't make the majors. He was in the minor league and eventually quit, went back to basketball. And that had kind of an impact on me at that time because I realized that in my career, I was no Michael Jordan of the business world. I'm not saying that by, by any stretch. But what I'm saying is that I was involved in a certain activity. I was getting perhaps better at it. I was getting deeper into it. And I sort of perceived that at some point, uh, I won't be able to move. Uh, it'll be, it's sort of like the notion of golden handcuffs. And so there was a, a pivotal moment where I suddenly decided that I was going to pursue my I could call it my dream. It was something that I had talked about a lot. Um, I had sort of envisioned um, getting back into academia. And uh, and then one day it just seemed like it's now or never. And it seemed like a great idea. I had support for my family and uh, we loaded up the, sold everything actually, and, and loaded up the car and uh, I went back to school. And uh, and just in terms of your question, I think you were asking about IB. Um, the notion of being whether to be an IB scholar versus any other kind was never really a debate for me. It was never a question. Ever since I I can remember, I was always interested in international issues, um, even as a as a young child. I remember thinking about foreign places and foreign countries and other, and I was particularly interested in other cultures, particularly cultures that were very different from mine. I always did a lot of reading. I was excited about by that topic. The various jobs that I had in my uh, career in industry were all very much international uh, with, internet, with international customers, international suppliers, a lot of travel. And it was that that really kept me going for the 15 years that I was in industry. I would say it was the international component that always kept me really engaged and excited by what I was doing. So when it came time to choose a, a stream or a discipline, it seemed that the, the shortest distance for me or something or a way that I could use some of which of my experiences or knowledge uh, in a practical sense was strategic management because that was more or less my my job when I when I was in industry, particularly towards the later years. And again, the, the notion of, of international has always been really interesting and really important to me. So it wasn't this sort of debate about where I should go. It was like, I'm going into academia. I'm going to go into international business with a focus on strategy. Okay. Mm -hmm. Anthony, if you could do it all over again, uh, would you... Follow the same path? Would you do exactly what you did or would it? Yeah. Well, I, I guess there's a, a million uh, forks in the road that I wish that I had, you know, had more awareness of, you know, where I was going, what I was doing. Frankly, I would say that 
especially now, given how, how much I've really embraced academia and really enjoy my work as a, as a, a researcher and as a teacher and mentor. I sometimes I wonder whether, you know, should I have gone into academia sooner? Many of my colleagues, you know, it's, I think it's very common to have worked for, you know, three years, five years, and then you dive into academia and that's where your career is. But I stayed, you know, outside for many more years. And sometimes I wonder whether I might have been able to make a greater impact had I had, you know, started five, 10 years earlier. That, so that's a thought. Although, you know, I, I can't say that I really second guess um, the choices that I made were the right ones for me at the time. And whereas I think now there might have been certain choices that I could have made that might have, you know, added something here, but they would have taken something away from there. So on balance, I'm I'm not really sure that I would change much, if anything, but that might be one to to maybe start sooner, I would say. Perfect. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. Mm. Well, I can't speak for them as to whether they'll find it interesting, but something that's not on my CV is uh, uh, that I am trying to learn how to paint. I'm, I'm trying really hard, actually, to learn how to paint. Um, and I'm absolutely captivated by painting and... Um, uh, and I'm interested in, uh, I've, I've taken a particular interest in abstract landscapes. And, uh, and so I'm finding that um, it's really been something that, uh, painting is something that opens your eyes, I have found. And I've heard other people say this, that painting, like photography, it's about seeing. And when you look at some of the sort of famous work that's been done, or even, you know, not necessarily famous work, but some of the, the artists who are really kind of accomplished, the, the way that they can look at a, at a scene and what they highlight and is it really is a fascinating thing. And in addition to that, I would say that it has really improved or, or enhanced my awareness of color. Whereas, you know, at one time, I would say, you know, you look at a tree and you see green or you look at the water and you see blue. But in fact, it's not green and it's not blue. In fact, there's often there's different colors, sometimes that are not even in the green range that make up the illusion of a green tree. And it's really quite fascinating to see how some people particularly in, in, in the realm of abstract landscapes, how people go about representing that those, what they see, because you're not, you're not trying to create a, yeah, you're not trying to create a representation. You're not trying to create a copy. You're trying to create a feeling, right? And how do you go about creating that feeling when you look at a landscape is, uh, is really, is really interesting. As I said, really captivated me and i'm trying trying to learn how to do that how serious is this uh, it's not a hobby obviously for you but how serious yeah. is this uh, for you uh, how many hours do you dedicate uh, to to painting yeah uh, week? well i would say you know i would i would say probably not more than five or six 
probably not more than that. So often, you know, in an evening, I'll do maybe two hours. I find it absolutely exhausting. For me, it is absolutely exhausting to paint. I find that my I'm I'm so kind of um, drawn into what I'm trying to do that um, that as I say, for me, I I've heard of people painting all day. I don't know how they do it, uh, but for me, about two hours is about the most I can really manage, and I'll try that twice, three times a week, something like that. Interesting. But in terms of of how serious or you know. If you were to make an offer right now, you might get a better deal on one of my paintings now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for the cost of materials, even. <laughs> um, okay, uh, what did you learn from your biggest failure or biggest mistake? Yeah, I would say in academia, I think, well, gosh, how long do we have? I think I could talk about my failures for uh, if you have a few days. But in terms of academia, one of the, I would say, well, I think there are many failures, frankly, but one that really stands out to me and I'm, I'm still trying to learn from even today happened maybe 20 years ago. It was, uh, I had a manuscript that I had submitted to AMJ and I made it through to the third review, third review, and it got rejected. And I know why it got rejected. The reason being is because I, I think I had not learned humility in the way that I needed to. I felt that, I don't know, the best way I think I can put it is that I was trying to prove the reviewers wrong. They had an idea about what should be and what shouldn't be or how to, you know, what, what things should look like. And I resisted and I, I fought back. And I realized that I scuttled my, uh, that opportunity to publish an AMJ, which was really disappointing for me. But I realized that that was a, a life lesson for me in a number of different ways. One has to do with the notion of humility that you kind of, Sometimes when you spend a lot of time on something, you kind of think you know everything and, and you don't. You don't know everything. I don't know everything. So that was something that I needed to maybe be reminded of. And the other thing was to do, has to do with the, I think the, the craft of publishing, which is that when you submit an article, um, I need to, relinquish control to a certain extent, not kind of abandon control, but it becomes in a way a partnership with the editor and with, with your reviewers. And to listen carefully, to listen respectfully, it's really easy to get frustrated when they don't accept some of the ideas that, that I have that in, this, in this article, they didn't accept the, the, the way that I was characterizing um, a certain theory into what I was highlighting and what I was downplaying, they didn't accept that. And I, and I think that what I should have done has been much more uh, open. And I think that for me, those, those two ideas, the notion of, of humility and the notion of working with people, not against them, I think were two life lessons that I would, I would um, trace back to that, that AMG, that painful AMJ um 
review that I went through that led ultimately in rejection after the third round. Where did this paper go to after? Yeah, well, it, it made it to, it, so it got into SMJ. And um, which is very, I mean, great. I mean, you know, just as great. But it was just the way it was done, and my role in in that was was the thing that really was something that um, that I felt I needed to really take to heart. And I remember thinking that at the time, I need to take this to heart. How do you explain your research, and why is it important to to people who don't read academic? Uh, journals to, to layman. Uh, what does your research do? Yeah, I think the best way that I explain it, uh, if somebody were to ask, is that there's a, a strong and and growing sense that business needs to account for more than profits. But there's a instead there's a rising awareness that <clears throat> social and environmental issues need to be addressed by everyone, not just government and not just uh, non-governmental organizations. It was an, Anita Roddick who, the founder of The Body Shop said many, many years ago now that there is no institution, not religion, not government, that is stronger, that is faster, that can turn on a dime than business. And that it has to have now in this day and age, a sense of, moral responsibility for what's going on around. So the research I'm working on with my uh, PhD students relates to the ways and means by which managers can move the needle on social and environmental issues within their own global value chains. And if that, if that explanation hasn't already cleared the room, uh, I would say, I would go on to say, that I, I, I don't think there is a single strategic management course anywhere that doesn't have as one of the core learning goals has to do with know your competitive advantage, um, leverage your key resources and capabilities, uh, understand your core competence, all of these ideas are ones that focus inwards. Who are we? What are we good at? And how do we leverage that? But the, the current, the direction I think that the world is going in is that there are a number of very important things that are going on that relate to social and environmental issues. And as we ask business to take on more, we're in some sense going against that notion of stick to your knitting, of know your core competence, you know, of leverage your, your, your competitive advantage. We're asking them, no, get out of your comfort zone, start understanding some of these other issues and get involved in them and learn how you can play a role. So I think that we're at, uh, I would say, a, a paradigm shift, I think, in, in international strategic management where we are asking managers to do something that is fundamentally different than what they've been doing uh, in the past. So, uh, Anthony, let's talk about uh, forgotten variables, forgotten concepts yeah. uh, in IB, the, the, the next steps for the next uh, five to 10 years of the field, mm -hmm. and maybe tie it to your research uh, with the uh, award paper. Mm -hmm. uh, 
What is missing in the, in the literature? You know, I, I would tie it on to that last answer. So in my view, I think what's missing has to do with the notion of how do we bring in social and environmental issues into our concept of business unit strategy. I think at this moment, it isn't clear at all. And, you know, there, there often is this sense that managers are, are um, you know, greenwashing and they're, you know, this sort of, it's like there's something devious and underhanded. I don't believe that for a second. You know, I, in all of the managers that I've ever talked to, and I know myself when I was a manager, really wanting to do the right thing, but it's not, it's not clear on how to do the right thing or who should do the right thing or how should that be done? So, uh, you know, I, in my view, the world I think is, is on fire in a number of ways. Um, and I think that it's all hands on deck to address some of the, the, the social issues that I think represent an existential threat to capitalism and environmental is issues that represent an existential threat to humanity. So I don't think that we can be huddled away in our own areas. I think that we, as I said a moment ago, I think it's all hands on deck. We need to figure this out and understand how can we actually uh, make a dent in, in some of the issues, some of the major large looming issues, climate change, um, so many issues that need to be, that we need a, a much greater understanding of. So what variables are missing? I think ones that relate to those issues. Anthony, you, you painted a picture, a very positive picture for the type of manager uh, that we're talking about, but isn't it different than the Knightian manager, the Corsian, the Williamsonian? Um, even yeah. Spence's uh, signaling gaming uh, style, the, the concept of agency is, is, uh, uh, is uh, giving birth to these type of people, people acting in guile. So is this a new uh, evolution, uh, the, the changing culture in IB, changing culture in strategic management, or... Um, um, in other words, is the manager of the old times mm -hmm. different than the manager of the new times? Absolutely, it has to be. And I know when I teach my uh, master's students uh, in, in global strategy, I tell them that uh, there has to be a new way. We have to, we, and, we, and as I said a moment ago, we don't know what that way is yet. Uh, but that's, that is our role as scholars, as researchers to understand what that new way is. How can we provide guidance to managers, to NGOs, to policymakers on what that new way is? But I, I, I don't believe that it's business as usual. I think that, that there are, are issues that are looming that are, you know, are, are so important. And meanwhile, I think many of us are, you know, there's the, the cliche about rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic. You know, it's this notion of you're, you're spending time working on something that just doesn't matter because you're about to hit an iceberg. So, you know, I think that, uh, I think the manager of, of tomorrow, in fact, the manager of today, I think is, is already 
changing. And if it's not changing, I think um, that in itself is a is um, a real problem in itself for sure. Okay, who had the most impact on your uh, intellectual development? Who was your mentor? Well, uh, Paul Beamish was my advisor, so he certainly set me on uh, a tr on a on a path, and has been a fantastic supporter uh, and mentor for me throughout throughout my career, even to the present day. And what was the best advice you received from Paul? Hmm. Yes. Well, I do recall him talking to me about. The, the idea that we were talking about before about uh, the AMJ rejection, I remember him mentioning that um, to me at the time also. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a slow learner, obviously. <laughs> um, and every, every rejection hurts even now. Uh, after no kidding. Time. No, absolutely. Uh, what do you see as the biggest challenge in front of junior faculty or uh, uh, PhD students, as far as uh, the biggest mistakes that they make uh, constantly, what would you say? Do this uh, or uh, don't do this? Mm -hmm. What is the advice? You know, I think that that perhaps the the number one skill uh, that a scholar needs uh, it has to do with uh, people management, understanding how to work with people, and that and you know, faculty, uh, other researchers, reviewers, they're all a lot, they are all a lot like people and they behave just like people do. And I think that that notion of, of trying to understand how to work with people, how to work through them, uh, to collaborate with them, uh, I think is, is an essential skill that is, you know, building your network, uh, which is the the ways that you can provide, you know, fabulous the, all the all the opportunities that I've had to travel, to do research, to get in all. It's because I have tried fairly consciously to build my social network. So I think that is something that um, uh, I encourage my PhD students uh, every time you go to a conference. Uh, or any kind of research meeting, come away with at least one person that you now consider to be a, a colleague, somebody that you can call on, that you can talk to, that you can email, you can share information with. And start start slowly and keep building your your social network. Because I think that's where, you know, that's that is how that's the spice of it, I think. You know, that's the the exciting part for, you know, surely it's about publishing and whatnot. But I think the the uh, to be part of a community, to be sharing ideas, to be developing, to be building towards something, I think is really kind of the spice uh, of academia. So that would be, you know, the, the thing I know that I try to impress upon my PhD students for sure. Is this the same thing for uh, mid-career or... <clears throat> assistant uh, professors as well. Yeah. Is this the uh, advice that you will give to uh, not patients, but a bit older? Yeah, no, I, I would. Um, the thing though that occurs to me is that for, you know, for people skills, my sense is if you didn't learn it in kindergarten, 
you maybe you will never learn it. I think it's something that that comes very early in life, your ability to relate to people and to work with people, make people feel included, um, make them feel valued, uh, uh, make them feel that you are trying to get them where they want to go. Um, I think those are all, I think those are skills that, um, that uh, a manager or at any level, a scholar at any level, any uh, stage in their career would, would, uh, would definitely benefit if they have those, those kinds of skills. Uh, last question for the sake of time. Uh, what's the question I should have asked you about Evans? Uh, I think it's uh, the question should be uh, would you would you could you buy me a beer at uh, AIB Warsaw? <laughs> okay. Uh, I still haven't heard the question. Uh, can I? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so, are you going to uh, AIB? Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So now you're on the hook. <laughs> of course, it would be a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, uh, Anton, thank you very much for your time. Uh, yeah, is there anything that uh, you need to get off your chest before we hang up? No, no. It's it's all good. I, I appreciate your doing this, and uh, I hope it provides some some value. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. All right. Bye for now.